Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And then we're also, if you flip over a couple gospels to Luke, we're gonna be in chapter 18, and we're gonna read the first eight verses. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they could always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but he finally said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, to what just, <laughs> and the Lord said, listen to what the unjust just says. Um, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So yeah, Lord, we, uh, we open your word. We also open up our hearts. We pray, God, that this word would become living within us. Not just written on a page, not just spoken out by Jesus, but would your word be spoken forth from our lives as we receive from you. Holy Spirit, whisper to us. And as we go out, would we be transformed into the living word that brings this to life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Either God is not powerful enough or God is not good enough. Either way, it felt like the only choice I was left with was to diminish my view of God. Gemma said that to me. And she wasn't looking directly at me when she said it. She was looking off in the distance, maybe because it was hard to look me in the eye through all of the emotion that it brought up, but more likely because I wasn't the one that she was saying it to. She was saying it to God, and I just happened to be eavesdropping. And what Gemma was getting at in that statement is what theologians typically name theodicy, an English word formed from two Latin words, literally meaning the justice of God. And there is no spirituality, no philosophy, no worldview that manages to sidestep the theodicy riddle. The unavoidable, painfully personal question that gets littered into our lives by suffering. How does a perfectly good, altogether loving, completely powerful God square with a world of evil? and pain and suffering. You see, however it is that you choose to explain life, at the end of the day, you're gonna be left trying to fit the square peg called justice into the round hole called suffering. Even Jesus himself fell to his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before his arrest and crucifixion and a prayer spilled out of his anguished soul. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. It's a beautiful sentiment, one that holds intention, both the approachability and the majesty of God. Uh, in the same breath, Jesus calls God Abba, the ultimate title of intimacy, and acknowledges his limitless power. Jesus is saying the loving Father is also the one for whom nothing is out of reach. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. 
And there's the rub. Because if that's true, then God's got some explaining to do. Because at least from my vantage point, and I imagine yours too, there's a long egregious list of things that a God infinite in power and perfect in love has not done. Abba Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. That was the prayer of Jesus in his hour of great need. But of course, the cup of suffering was not taken from him. He was unjustly arrested, tried without representation, tortured publicly, mocked repeatedly, and killed gruesomely that very night. The one who was born without the help of biology, who once moved across the lake like it was a dance floor and fed 5,000 people with a single tuna sandwich. The one who used dirt and spit to cure blindness and sent demons running with their tails tucked. The one who breathed life into a dead corpse with a single command also endured the silence of God. Unanswered prayer stalks Jesus' final 24 hours. So we're nearing the end of a teaching series on suffering titled, In This World You Will Have Trouble. We are taking Jesus' least popular promise and we are staring it down for six consecutive weeks. And what I'm here to offer you today is a continuation of a teaching that Bethany began last week on unanswered prayer, where she left off, I'm going to pick up. And just as a quick note, there was such phenomenal teaching week after week here while I was away that I'm kind of uncomfortable right now. (laughs) I'm, I'm back in the saddle, but I don't know if I can tame this wild steed the way I've seen it done week after week. And it's not gonna get any easier. We just announced we've got Tim Mackey doing a lecture event with us this Wednesday night, which if you aren't prioritizing, you should just know that Tim and I were eating tacos together and I was like, hey man, I got a question about Job. And we got about halfway into that discussion and I said, why don't we continue this conversation in the most public forum possible? So, so not only will we be teaching, but there's gonna be opportunity for interaction through Q&R. So if you haven't prioritized that time Wednesday, please do. And then JT Thomas is gonna be with us next week to rack up, wrap up the teaching series. So if inevitably this ends up being a letdown, there's gonna be other things to look forward to. I think it's really important that we spend not just one, but two weeks teaching on unanswered prayer. And that's because if we're gonna become a people of prayer, If we're going to be people whose best stories are built on the foundation of prayer and people who take Jesus up on the astounding promises for the power of intimacy in prayer, then we're also gonna have to be people who wrestle with God through the silence, disappointment, and disillusionment that unanswered prayer deals into our hand right alongside all the miraculous and the comforting. Gemma is the pastor that I worked most closely with during my 12 years in New York. I helped plant a church in Brooklyn and she walked every single step of that alongside me. She continues to pastor in that very community today. And one of the great treasures of my final weeks at Oaks Church Brooklyn came when I sat across from her in our phone booth sized office in this bustling New York co-working space and she told me the most personal version of a story that I had watched her live all of those years together. Either God's not powerful enough or God's not good enough, either way. At the time, it felt like the only choice I had left was to diminish my view of God. And she went on, you know, you go your whole life just assuming that one day you'll decide you wanna have kids and that's when you'll have them. You'll decide together, we're ready, and then you'll flip to the next chapter, but it didn't work that way for us. 
As a little backstory, Gemma is a woman of prayer. She uh, believes in a God who hears and responds, but it's more than just belief, she expects God's response. She lives in a way that is dependent on it. Years before I ever met her, her and her husband, John, were living penniless in Los Angeles and their entire survival strategy was prayer. They didn't have enough money for groceries, so they prayed and then were given free groceries from a local church. Uh, They didn't have enough money to make rent. Gemma prayed and she returned home one evening to find a check slipped under her door for the exact amount they were short on rent that month. Uh, Because they were rationing out each meal as frugally as possible, they were reheating a whole lot of leftovers and they didn't have a microwave in their modest apartment. Naturally, Gemma prayed. Two days later, she's standing in the parking lot of a laundromat in a really seedy part of town where she volunteered with an organization caring for houseless addicts and prostitutes. That had been her routine for quite a while at this point. Many of those that she began serving had grown into friends, so she's there in this parking lot. It's around midnight. She's ministering amongst a group of sex workers. When a car pulls up, someone steps out of a minivan and pulls what looks like a large box out of the side door and says, do any of you happen to need a microwave? And that's how she got her microwave, 48 hours after she prayed for it. A nagging question lived in the background of all of those answered prayer stories, though. God, I asked you for a microwave once, and you gave it to me. I've asked you for a baby every day for years, and all I get is silence. Why do you seem so in touch with my most trivial needs, but so distant from my deepest desires? And couldn't we all ask that question, or at least one like it? Don't we all have at least one critical area of our lives where God, who is present in so many ways, seems conspicuously absent and excruciatingly silent? If God had just responded with a straightforward no, that would have been a bitter pill, but at least we would have known that God heard us and in his infinite wisdom and eternal perspective has responded in the negative to this particular request. No is disappointing, but it still leaves foundation for ongoing relationship. No invites more communication, but silence? I mean, silence feels like apathy for the sufferer. Like God is unmoved and uncaring by what's going on down here. Silence feels like the only one with the power to stop the disease that's ravaging my mother's body can't be bothered. Or the only one who can open up my stubborn womb is too distracted to care. Or the one for whom I've held before my desire for companionship for decades is ignoring my deepest and most heartfelt cry. Silence leaves me thinking that God sees and God hears, but he willfully ignores my distress. That's what silence feels like for the praying person with her hands clasped. So around this same time, Gemma's sister-in-law, Amelia, happened to be diagnosed with cervical cancer. There was a tumor growing that that was discovered. It was quietly growing in this healthy young woman just in her 20s at the time. And that diagnosis could be treated, but the treatment would make it nearly impossible for her to ever carry a child to full term. Amelia and Gemma grew really close really quickly through that experience because they began living and walking the mostly silent grief of infertility side by side. But through fervent prayer and then eventually a prophetic picture, Gemma felt certain that God was going to give her brother Johnny and his wife Amelia a baby. So she was faithful in prayer for her. And sure enough, months after her diagnosis, Amelia was pregnant. And then despite all the warnings and words of caution from doctors, that baby grew within her all the way to full term. Henry was born that September. 
And Gemma celebrated that miracle alongside Amelia. It was within that same year that after several rounds of failed IVF treatment, finally Gemma was pregnant too. And both of these long-awaited prayers were finally being answered. But several months into Henry's little life, Amelia was still in pain. And she was told that it would take a while to recover from cesarean surgery, but this just was not getting any better. So she went in for an examination and a massive, inoperable tumor was discovered in her abdomen. Her cancer was back and back aggressively. It had been growing in her long enough that it had become attached to several of her vital organs, so the doctors could not operate. There was no chance of removing it this time. But how had they missed it? How had it been allowed to grow this long and gotten this bad? Henry, there was a tumor growing that was shielded by the baby growing within her life and death, literally growing inside the same woman's body simultaneously. Seven months of aggressive chemo and radiotherapy later, there was nothing more the doctors could do. The tumor keeps growing, the treatments aren't working. So Amelia turned to alternative medicine and to a strict diet to, to reach out for healing. She was convinced that something was going to work. Why would God give me this miracle baby and then take his mom in the process? He's gonna make a way where it seems like there's no way. That was June. By July, she had begun to deteriorate so rapidly that in August, Gemma booked a flight, got on a plane, full of hope that she was going to pray for yet another miracle to the way-making God, and that hope took a serious blow the second she walked into Amelia's hospital room. She looked so bad, Gemma said that all of her faith was immediately replaced by God. I don't think you can do this. I don't think anyone comes back when they're this far gone. The next day, Gemma and the others brought Amelia home from the hospital and more and more family began to gather. They're all waiting for her to go, waiting for her to say goodbye, death hanging heavily over the house the way it does in times like that. And Gemma sat outside Amelia's room giving space to the family that was gathered by her bedside. Johnny was in there along with Amelia's mother and her siblings and her father. And I can remember so vividly Gemma telling me, you know, Tyler, there's there's something that happens when you've sat beside the, the bedside of, a, of the dying for a long time. You get used to just hearing her breathe. It's almost like a piece of music that has a rhythm and a melody. And so you can hear when there's a key change. And I heard it from the hallway. And I walked in and I stood there at the foot of her bed. And I said on behalf of everyone who was standing silently, it's okay, Amelia. You don't have to be scared. You can go. And she did. Henry was one week from turning one year old when his mom died. A few weeks after that, Gemma returned to New York. I walked back into my home and the weight of that loss finally hit me like an anvil. The last time I had set foot in that apartment, I was packing up to go, I was counting on a miracle and now I'm back here and she's gone, no miracle. And I just couldn't see how normal life was supposed to pick up and keep going after this. I was grieving Amelia, but I was also grieving who I was before her loss because I always thought I was gonna be one of those Christians that hits hardship and keeps going. I know now 
that I'm not that person. And Gemma just kept talking, I see it now. This is the moment where so many people walk away. And I wanted to walk away, but there was two things tethering me to Jesus that I just couldn't walk away from. The first one was that there was so much good tied to Jesus too. And to deny him, I couldn't just deny the moment of his absence, I had to deny his presence in so many good moments that I could recount. And the second was that I was too angry to walk away. Like when you're in an argument with your spouse and you know you should cool it and get it in a few minutes, but you've got something to say and you just have to say it. I couldn't walk away because I was angry. You see, Gemma stepped back into that Brooklyn apartment, which when she left was a landmark of faith in a God who heals, thinking, you know, God could have healed Amelia. He could have given her thousands of days watching her little boy grow up, thousands of days alongside in covenant love with her husband. He could have given the two of them thousands of days of watching her grow old. God could have given all of that and God didn't give any of that. Abba Father, everything is possible for you. And if Jesus was right about that, then God either willed something so painful that it seems entirely unforgivable, or maybe God didn't will the cancer and the death, he just allowed it. But does that, even though it lands softer, does it make God any less culpable? I mean, that's like saying maybe he's not a murderer, but doesn't that just make him the doctor with the cure to cancer hidden in his nightstand, who's keeping secret the, the healing power to something that is taking lives all around me all the time? Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. But in light of what I've seen, how can that be? And if it is, how can I keep on trusting you? The author Jack Deere wrote three books on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We recommended a couple of them. Had them in our bookstore during our fall demonstrating the gospel practice. But his most recent book is a memoir which is titled Even in Our Darkness. And in that book, he tells the story of the miraculous power of God in his public ministry, but of his son's suicide and his wife's subsequent plunge into alcoholism leading to their eventual divorce in his private life. And in that remarkably honest book, Deere writes, for decades I had preached that the mystery of suffering would always elude our understanding. It was an easy thing to say until the weight of that mystery crushed me. Personally, I've had the very real experience of praying for someone in a hospital room that the medical staff had left for dead only to see that person wake up and go on living. I have personally experienced the heaven-kissing-earth kind of power at a God who intervenes. And I have also held the hand of a young man who was in a drug, drug overdose-induced coma. His family had invited me in there because their prayers for him didn't seem effective and they thought maybe God would listen to me because he didn't seem to be listening to them. And I've taken leaders from my church prayer ministry in there and I've anointed that young man's head with oil and I've prayed all the promises I know to pray over him and I've walked out about an hour later past the same family grieving the fact that their son's not coming back. And God doesn't seem any more attentive to my prayers than he did to theirs. I know the power of God and I know the silence of God and sometimes I wonder if maybe I'd handle the silence better if power wasn't on the table at all. Because a God with a personality and a will is relational, sure, and that's beautiful, but that also makes him unpredictable. And maybe it would be easier if we had a God that works something more like an operating system that delivered predictable results based on us pushing the right kind of buttons, but that's not the God that is revealed on the pages of scripture. 
It's not the God that Jesus showed us and it's not the God that I've walked with all these years. So what do we do with all that? What do we do with the God who gives microwaves in response to some prayers and nothing in response to others? With the God of infinite power and the God of deafening silence? With the God whose power, even his power, is never entirely unstained by the suffering of this world? Well, that is the question that we're bringing to our teaching text today. So we're gonna look back at these two passages that were read for us a few minutes ago. One is a straightforward statement of Jesus taken right out of his most famous block of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. So if you would stick a finger in Matthew 7. The other is a story that Jesus told later, which is recorded in Luke's Gospel, and it adds shape and texture to the point that he made so bluntly and concisely in Matthew 7. So stick a finger in Luke 18. And we're gonna bounce back and forth between these two, braiding them together like two cords that when held together, offer us a dignifying, empathetic, instructive, and clear teaching from Jesus on the painful conundrum of unanswered prayer. Ask, seek, knock. Of everything Jesus had to say on the subject of prayer, there's perhaps no more infamous or confusing words than those three simple verbs. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now on the one hand, those words issue an empowering and straightforward invitation. And on the other hand, in our own experience, it does seem that that invitation does not deliver predictable, consistent results. So was this false advertising by Jesus? Was he overpromising here? Or might his invitation actually have been lost in translation somewhere along the way? Well, in these three verbs, what Jesus is doing is he's naming the common trail markers on the journey of prayer, a path that has been tread by men and women of faith throughout the centuries. Prayer is a journey that most often begins with need but ends in relationship, and that's what Jesus is getting at. He is naming the hidden invitation deep within prayer. Ask refers to the requests that bring us to prayer. Almost every prayer is preceded by a need. Prayer starts with a diagnosis or a car accident or a negative pregnancy test or a credit card bill that keeps climbing or a breakup or a divorce or another holiday with that same loved one absent. Life just has a way of dealing us a card or two that we never saw coming and don't know how to make sense of. We go happily humming along with the elusive but very fragile sense of control that we get used to over our lives when all of a sudden something comes along that gut punches us, mugs us in broad daylight, and leaves us in a story that we don't recognize. And when you don't know the way back to the plot you thought you were living, you pray. You ask in the language of Jesus. Seek is a word that's peppered throughout the scripture and it's always in reference to God himself. We're instructed to seek God through the stories of kings and judges, through the poetry of the Psalms and the language of the prophets. And by using this word seek here, Jesus is pointing the way along the path of prayer. We come asking and then we discover relationship with us amidst the mess. We come seeking gifts and sometimes we get them. But the greatest gift, the one we're guaranteed to receive and the one that we're really after is the giver himself. Ask, seek, knock. Jesus' final verb, then the destination of the prayer journey that began with need. 
Now, biblically speaking, knock provokes the imagery of table fellowship, as in Revelation 3. Behold, or here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, that's a pretty clear and provocative image in today's world of power lunches and takeout dinners and fast food, but it was all the more provocative in the Hebrew world where acceptance, dignity, and equality were communicated by table fellowship. You see, in Jesus' time and place, to dine with someone wasn't merely to tolerate their company while you get some much-needed nourishment. It was the greatest affirmation of their person and character. It was the language of acceptance and dignity. That's why Jesus gets criticized for breaking bread with tax collectors and prostitutes and notorious sinners. Because it was one thing for a rabbi to be seen conversing with such a person on a street corner, but to sit down at table with them, that was unthinkable. Jesus does not merely tolerate our company or entertain our requests. It was by the way that he lived and the story he told through his life that he offers the greatest invitation of prayer. I affirm your person, I choose your company, I delight in your presence. That's the destination of the prayer journey. Mother Teresa says it this way, prayer enlarges the heart until it's capable of containing God's gift of himself. Ask and seek and your heart will grow big enough to receive him and keep him as your own. One of the most famous icons in church history is the 15th century Russian painting commonly named the Trinity. Now this painting has stood the test of time because it so vividly captures the divine in a common space, the Father, Son, and Spirit sitting leisurely around a table enjoying each other's company. Prayer in any form by any body is an invitation to pull up a chair to that table and to sit in unhurried, intimate, restful, unbroken conversation with the living God. Or as Jesus put it, knock and the door will be open to you. So here is the prayer uh, journey according to Jesus. We come for gifts, we get the giver, and we find ourselves seated at his table, welcomed, accepted, and loved. Ask, seek, knock. Now all that's great, but of course some of you are already thinking, yeah, beautiful and poetic Jesus, but what about the other side of the coin? What about when my asking doesn't result in receiving, my seeking doesn't lead to any kind of finding, and despite my knocking, this door is not opening? What about when the events of life send me into prayer, and then prayer leaves me right there, still alone, waiting in the difficult, painful events of life? Well, these three words, ask, seek, knock, they're written in an ancient Greek verb tense that we don't have a grammatical equivalent for in today's English. It implies not just a single action, but a present action that goes on into the future. The most literal translation of this verse is, keep on asking and you will receive. Keep on seeking and you will find, keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. In fact, some English translations, maybe the one you read from, translate it that way, word for word. So what is Jesus' response to those of us who find ourselves praying without an answer, seeking without finding, knocking without being welcomed in? How does Jesus respond to the real deep questions of those who are praying faithfully, waiting patiently, and beginning now to grow weary? Persistence. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. It's an unsatisfying response. Depending on your particular story of praying and waiting, 
might even be insensitive, offensive. And Jesus knew this would be a tough pill to swallow, so he knew that a straightforward explanation wasn't going to be quite enough to keep us praying in the face of silence, and so he gave us a story to put flesh and bones on it, to empathize with the very real pain of the human experience and to ground the invitation of persistent prayer, not in the theoretical world of stained glass and hymns and homilies, but in the gritty, down-to-earth world of real life. Today we call that story the parable of the persistent widow, and it is the biblical ground zero for those who, in response to the waiting that prayer entails, have lowered our expectations for God, have somewhere along the way watered down the ask, seek, knock invitation into some good but lesser version that allows us to hold on to the love of God or the God that we love without being disappointed or angered by the absence of that very God. And Jesus had a particular motive in telling this story. It is distinct among all of his other parables in that the punchline is given away right up front. I mean, most of Jesus' parables are these cryptic uh, stories that are kept mysterious and, and he ends with some phrase like, whoever has ears, let him hear. But Luke, like Jesus, seems to know that persistence and just keep on asking is gonna be hard to stomach. So he intros this story of Jesus this way. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He steals the ending before Jesus has gotten a single word in. He's saying, Jesus painted a picture for you to hold on to like a life raft when you find yourself drowning in silence and disappointment. Here it comes. And the invitation of the story comes in the form of the widow who relentlessly brings the same request before the judge. And the promise of the story is found in its most confusing character, the slimy judge. Let's read in verse four. For some time he, meaning the judge, refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so she won't eventually come and attack me. Now if Jesus is comparing the person at prayer to the widow, is he also comparing the God on the receiving end of our prayers to the judge? And that's not a very flattering mirror to hold up to God, is it? Uh, the judge is reluctant, self-interested, annoyed by the requests of the praying person. But thankfully, Jesus goes on to interpret his own parable for us, continuing from there. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Jesus doesn't compare God to the judge, he distinguishes God from the judge. His point is that even if a judge this bad will give justice to the persistent, how much more will God give uh, justice to those who are persistent in prayer? Eugene Peterson says, prayer is not begging God to do something for us he doesn't know about, or begging God to do something that he hasn't time for. In prayer, we persistently, faithfully, trustingly come before God, submitting ourselves to his sovereignty, confident that he is acting right now on our behalf. But where does that confidence come from? Only from the assurance that we are his chosen ones, as Jesus calls us in the very same breath. It's repeated in the language of Romans 8. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What is God up to right now? 
while I'm waiting and praying and drowning in silence. Oh, he's weaving together history into a redemptive good future for his chosen ones, meaning you and me and anyone else who calls Jesus Lord. In fact, Jesus is so interested and involved in the events of your day-to-day life that he is in the ear of the Father echoing your prayers throughout the throne room of heaven. Scripture concludes by teaching that there are two things that God collects, two things that last forever. This world in its current form is passing away, but there are two things going on in the present that are eternal, and that's our prayers and our tears. God collects your prayers. In Revelation 5, we're offered a glimpse at the receiving end of all the things that we say between dear God and amen. And the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Now, do you realize what this means? It means that every prayer you've ever whispered from the simplest uh, throwaway request to the most heartfelt cry, God has collected it like a grandmother scrapbooking a toddler's scribbles. God's treasured up every prayer you've ever uttered, even the ones you have forgotten, and he is still weaving their fulfillment, bending history in the direction of a great yes. Revelation does not end with God as a scrapbooking grandmother, though it ends with God as a powerful redeemer. This is three chapters later. I'm gonna pick up in Revelation 8. Another angel who had a golden censure came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censure, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now this is atonement or ancient temple imagery to say that at the proper time, God is tipping the prayer bowl, and he's pouring our requests out on the earth. He's collected every prayer that you've ever prayed, and redemption comes when he rains those prayers down on earth once and for all. The renewal of the world, heaven and earth restored as one, begins when God pours out all the prayers of his children throughout history like a purifying fire over creation with one great resounding forever yes. Every prayer in the end is an answered prayer. Some are still waiting on that yes, but it's coming. That's the kind of judge that we're dealing with. God collects more than just your prayers, though he also collects your tears. Psalm 56 says, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? So biblically speaking, prayer is asking, it is pointing God from the perspective of heaven down into creation and pointing out some messes that need to get sorted out, but prayer is also weeping. It's when the mess is so thick down here, I cannot see God through the weeds, and so I cried out, I can't take it any longer! In Psalm 126, it says, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Not only will God collect every tear, he's not just bottling it up, he'll redeem every tear. God's not just storing our tears away in a bottle, he promises that every tear of yours that falls to the ground will grow the fruit of redemption. 
You see, God bends history so that the moments of greatest pain in our lives become the moments of greatest redemption. He is the kind of author that is twisting the story together so, so that every bit of pain you feel actually releases the power of new life and renewal and the tears you cry that hit the soil become seeds that grow a better world. God's doing more than just uh, eventually bringing an end to future pain. In the present, God redeems our pain by turning those moments of pain uh, of unanswered prayer into the power of redemption. He turns the tears that we shed in the waiting into the seeds of the new creation. You see, we're promised that a day is coming when the Lord himself will personally wipe away every tear from our eyes. But until then, we live on an in-between promise. I won't let a single tear you shed go wasted. So here is the promise of the persistent widow. I hear you, and I'll make all things right, all things new. And that new creation is seeded by the prayers of his people, and it's watered by their tears. Both are key ingredients in the remaking of the world. Our persistence in prayer comes from the promise that we don't pray to a reluctant, half-interested, can't-be-bothered to judge, but to an unfathomably loving Father who collects every prayer we ever utter and every tear we ever shed. The final word Jesus speaks on the parable does not come in the form of a promise, though. He closes after all of that with a simple and straightforward challenge. I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? See, even Jesus seems to admit that most people lose steam in this long journey of asking, seeking, and knocking. He promises a good ending is coming so good that it's gonna redeem not just creation as a whole, but every moment of pain and every individual life, none of it wasted. But Christ asks us, when the time of that fulfillment comes, the time of that redemption, will I find men and women of faith? Well, I find any who haven't lost heart along the way, any who have trusted me and my promise enough to keep praying in the face of waiting, will he find us hollowed out and flattened by our spiritual disappointment, or will he find us fighting and confronting the darkness alongside him? Will he find us in the persistent prayer of the widow who cries out day and night, or will he find us having on silent, lowered our expectations, because this is the experience that I'll define all the others by? See, when we've grown impatient with the waiting and we've lost stamina for persistence, what on earth can keep us praying? Well, we've gotta recover an understanding of the way God's at work, not just at work in the full and final redemption, but at work in the present moment here and now. Let's return to Gemma. She sat in her grief counselor's office, making her weekly appointment, trying to sift through the mess that unanswered prayer had dumped into her lap. And on this particular day, the grief counselor asked her, Gemma, what reason could God give you? What I mean is, Gemma, what reason could God give you that would justify Amelia's death? If he could speak to you face to face, is there anything he could say, any explanation he could offer for not healing her that you would find satisfactory? Is there any answer that would make her loss okay? And the truth is, and Gemma spoke slowly to me now, like that bustling, loud, distracting, co-working space had become sacred, and like just to return to this memory was to return to holy ground. 
And the truth is, Tyler, there was nothing. And that realization left me with the choice to make. I could embrace mystery or I could run from it. Could I make peace with not knowing why my prayers weren't answered? Or would this be the one experience that I define all the others by, that I define God by, the one experience that overwhelms everything else that's happened along the way? Could I trust God without knowing the answers or reasons? We're all gonna face painful disorientation at some point in our lives and the challenging invitation of faith is to learn to trust him even in the darkness. You see, wrestling with God through unanswered prayer, uh, being persistent in prayer, it's confirmation of true belief, not of concerning doubt. Uh, those who only half-heartedly believe don't take offense at God's silence. It's only those of us who believe and believe hard, hard enough to walk out on this limb of faith, far enough to have felt it snap beneath us a time or two and to know the free fall that ensues after that who care to wrestle with a God who at times seems fickle. Parker Palmer says, the deeper our faith, the more doubt we must endure. The deeper our hope, the more prone we are to despair. The deeper our love, the more pain its loss will bring. These are a few of the paradoxes we must hold as human beings. If we refuse to hold them in hope of living without doubt, despair, and pain, we also find ourselves living without hope, faith, and love. Gemma went on, pain and suffering has the capacity to deepen you and transform you but it also has the capacity to destroy you. And I realized this pain I was carrying was destroying me. So how exactly is it that the pain that may be eating me alive can become the agent of my deepest transformation? Well, I have to invite God, the very one that broke my trust into the muck with me. I have to invite the one that everything in me wants to label perpetrator to be healer instead. It's the most courageous of all choices. As a young Christian, my faith was built on the resurrection power of Jesus, Gemma said. The God who drew me into the story was the God of resurrection power, the victorious savior, but now I got to know the suffering servant and the man of sorrows. The very spiritual life that first bloomed within me as I danced around his empty grave now was furthered as I, like Thomas, ran my finger over his wounds. And there, feeling around in the dark, it was not a God of resurrection power that Gemma discovered, it was a God who would enter the night and feel around in that very darkness with her. It was a God weeping in the garden. It was a God hanging on the cross. A God who occasionally displays healing power but who chooses personal suffering as the means to the final and unbreakable healing. And somehow as Gemma ran her fingers over his wounds, it's as if Jesus was healing her own. So what if the life that he lived was so that your darkest and deepest valley could be transformed? Not transformed into light, it's still pain, it still hurts, it's still suffering, plain and simple, but transformed into intimacy, into some kind of place where we're never alone the way Jesus was in Gethsemane. And what if the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was such a complete and satisfying victory that everything you experience, yes, everything, can be made into a place of intimacy with the God who gave everything for intimacy with you. Romans 5 seems to say something like this. It says something that is completely ludicrous until you've experienced it. We also glory in our sufferings 
Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, the biblical teaching is that suffering well turns the darkest valley into the place of a Holy Spirit encounter with the unique and personal love of God. That suffering is awful, but suffering well can be the soil where the fruit of the Spirit grows. So when Gemma stepped back into her apartment after Amelia's death, the story she had built her whole life on, it tumbled down like a house of cards. And the way she phrased it then was either God's not powerful enough or God's not good enough. But months later, after wandering around in the dark and seething in the church pew and grieving a version of herself that she felt was lost and never coming back, another option opened to her. In that grief counselor's office that day, she told me, I made my decision. I choose trust. Not trust that that God willed cancer or death, but trust that God is good that God is present in suffering and that God is making all things new. I choose trust. And when she said that, Gemma and I both just sat in that office in a holy quiet with tear-stained faces. I don't understand everything about God, but I can trust the God revealed in Jesus. The God who's never looked down on suffering from a lofty throne, but has always looked suffering eye to eye from level ground. I can trust the God who refuses to offer comforting but mostly empty platitudes from a throne some far off place and instead climbs down into the mess with me. And all of the biblical highlights, the subtext that lives behind every miracle on the pages of scripture and the soundtrack that hums beneath the life of every saint is a defiant and courageous choice that in the face of the dark experiences of life uh, that feel like God's absence and silence to say, I choose trust. This is why C.S. Lewis wrote, Satan's cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. In other words, trust when it's costly, when it's hard, when it has to be chosen is the great defiance from which redemption springs. And so today I wanna land here. Acts chapter 12 tells the incredible story of Peter's supernatural deliverance from prison. You've probably heard the story before. Peter gets thrown in jail for his faith. There's a public execution date set for tomorrow. And so the church gathers at somebody's house, prays all night that God would free Peter, and then Peter shows up at the prayer meeting. It turns out that in response to prayer, God's opened up a locked jail cell in the middle of the night and then supernaturally GPS guided Peter to the location of a prayer meeting he didn't even know was happening. That's the headline. That's the story everybody remembers from Acts 12, and it's a really good story. It's one worth remembering, but I'm not that interested in the headline. I'm caught up in the subtext. And so I wanna offer you the backdrop which that miracle happens in front of. This is Acts 12, starting in verse one. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Wait, God miraculously freed Peter, 
but James was unjustly executed? Why? Why would God respond miraculously to prayer for Peter, but silently to prayer for James? I mean, we're talking about two men that are in his inner, inner circle. We're talking about his core three, so it can't be that he preferred one of them over the other. And surely the church gathered to pray for both. I mean, these are the apostles of the apostles. If they gathered to pray all night for Peter, it stands to reason they would have gathered in kind for James. Both were arrested and imprisoned by a corrupt tyrant for the same unjust cause. It's likely that both occupied the exact same jail cell. So why, God? Why let James die if you've got the power to teleport Peter to safety? I don't know. That is the only honest answer. I don't know. Here's what I do know. I know that God works slowly, but it's out of compassion, not apathy. That the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, as it says in 2 Peter. And I know that love drives God to put up with a ton of corruption and that his slow, loving way of redemption asks of us patience and endurance in the suffering in the meantime. And I know that when I read Acts, I see a seasoned and resilient kind of faith. I see a praying people who dance with God through miracle, but who also bear with God through mystery. I know that lost in the background of the action sequences and miraculous montages of Acts chapter 12 is this, a community that gathered to pray all night for Peter, even when they tried that the night before and watched their friend executed. A community who kept on praying in the face of unanswered prayer. A community who persisted in prayer. Where does that come from? Only from the belief that God's bottling up my tears like fine wine and he's saving them right next to my prayers. That both of those are key ingredients in redemption and that he loves me too much to let either one go to waste. So can we recover that legacy from our ancient ancestors? Can we preserve it and enflesh it in our lives and express it with our bodies? Can we become a persistently praying kind of people? Jack Deere, whose memoir I referenced before, goes on to write this. What was more supernatural, a healing or a heart that still worshiped as cancer ravaged the body in which it beat? I can't say. I just wanted a heart like that. And I ask you, which one is more supernatural? Is it a God that can throw open a locked jail cell and teleport Peter to safety? Or is it a community that prays even when all they got is silence the very night before? I can't say. All I know is I wanna be a part of a community like that. So Bridgetown Church, can we recover the legacy of our ancient ancestors? Can we express it with our bodies and flesh it in our lives? Can we become a persistently praying kind of people?